0: Right now we are going to give attention to God's Word, uh, first to the reading of it, in Genesis 29:1, all the way through 30:24. It's a very long passage today. there will not be a New Testament reading for that reason, and then we will give ourselves also to the preaching of the Word of God. Genesis 29 verse one, "Hear now the word of the Lord." Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked, and he saw a well in the field, and behold. Three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father... As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and said, and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone and my flesh. You are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wage? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, "'I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel.' Laban said, "'It is better that I give her to you than, to, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me.' So Jacob served seven years for Rachel.' And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, "'What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me?' Laban said, "'It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years.' Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife.' Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, "'Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, "'he has given me this son also,' and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, "'Now this time my husband will be attached to me, "'because I have borne him three sons. "'Therefore his name was called Levi.' She conceived again and bore a son, and said, "'This time I will praise the Lord. "'Therefore she called his name Judah. "'Then she ceased bearing.' When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, "You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes." So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, "God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to be my husband uh, to my husband rather." So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, "God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me. Another son. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now as it is preached to apply it to our lives today. It was a long passage, wasn't it? It could have been broken into two parts. I decided to handle it all at once. It was a week or two ago that uh, one of you approached me after the worship service and asked this question. Why is it that the Genesis narrative places such a heavy emphasis upon the sins of the patriarchs Abraham Isaac and Jacob? At least that's my little paraphrase of the question that was posed. And it's a very good question that the Genesis narrative puts the sins of the fathers and the dysfunction of their families on full display. It's undeniable. You see it clearly now, don't you, by this time in our study of the book of Genesis? But the question is why? Why would God move Moses to write as He did? What was the purpose of delivering this particular message to Israel and also to us. Certainly a different story could have been told, different things could have been emphasized. Now I suppose that some might view the record of the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as simple warnings to the people of God. The message would be, look at what a mess your forefathers made of things when they acted contrary to the will of God. Emulate their faith, yes, but avoid their failures. I suppose that would be the message that we would draw out from this text if that were the point of of the emphasis upon their shortcomings. And I do not deny this is a valid application of the text. I myself, in my preaching, have drawn applications like this from the narrative of Genesis. For example, you have been warned against being driven by fear as Abraham and Isaac were when they took matters into their own hands and lied about their wives, saying only that they were their sisters. You have been warned against acting according to human wisdom and cunning instead of walking by faith. You've been encouraged to endure suffering with patience, trusting that the Lord will provide for you in His way and in His time. You've been encouraged to protect and invest into the marriage relationship. And you've been warned against showing favoritism to your children also. These are valid applications that can be drawn from the narrative of Genesis as we consider the mistakes that our spiritual forefathers made, Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob. It is right, therefore, for us to look upon the lives of the patriarchs and to imitate that which was good in them and also to avoid that which was sinful. Paul the the Apostle did approach the stories of the Old Testament in this way. He recognized that. They served as examples for us so that we might do what is good and avoid that which is evil. I am thinking here of what he had to say in First Corinthians 10 when he drew attention to that episode where Israel, after they had gone out from Egypt, they were in the wilderness and they were grumbling and they were complaining against God in the wilderness. And based upon that story, that Exodus story, he made this application for the church in Corinth. He said to them, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happen to them as an example he says but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages had come has come so paul looked upon that old testament story he noticed that the people of israel were wrong to grumble and to complain against the lord and he, war- he warns the the new covenant christian Do not grumble. Do not complain against God. Be thankful. Look at what happened to them in the past. That story was written down so that we might apply it to our life. So it is valid for us to make application like this from the narrative of Genesis. It is right that we look upon the faith of our fathers, just as Hebrews 11 does, and say, imitate that good thing. Do you see that they had faith? Imitate that faith. And it is also right that we observe their sins and say, Flee from this, for these things have happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. But I think we must also recognize that there are deeper and more substantial purposes for the emphasis upon the sins of the patriarchs and the dysfunction of their families in the Genesis narrative. Yes, it is right that we draw personal application from these stories, But there is a definite point that is being made, a point that has very much to do not only with our lives individually, but with the overarching story of the Bible, which is the story of our redemption in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, what is that point exactly? Well, I think it is twofold. One, when the Genesis narrative emphasizes time and again the sin of the patriarchs of Israel, it demonstrates The fact that our election, be it the election of Israel considered according to the flesh or the election of the Israel of God according to the Spirit, our election is only by the free and unmerited grace of God. These narratives demonstrate time and again and very clearly that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were set apart in the world not on the basis of their good works, but by the grace of God alone. This is a very big and foundational theme that runs through the story of the Bible, which is the story of our redemption through the work of Christ. Our election in Him, our being blessed in Him, our being reconciled to God through Him, is not the basis of our, on the basis of our good works, but by the free and unmerited grace of God alone. I think one of my favorite Old Testament passages, which draws attention to the unmerited favor that was set upon Israel from the start, is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. Here uh, the Lord rebukes Israel for, among other things, her pride. And to humble her, he reminds her that whatever good she has is the result of his unmerited, undeserved grace. Ezekiel writes, Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin, do you hear that word there? He says, let me tell you about your origin, your your beginnings. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And the passage goes on from there. Isn't it a beautiful uh, retelling of the origin of the history of Israel, which we are considering, by the way, right now in the book of Genesis. What does the prophet say to Israel? Think Think of how you got your start. Think of how you came into existence. It was God who gave you life. You were abhorred and abandoned, left for dead, hopeless in the world. And yet I had pity on you. I had compassion upon you. I said to you, live. I said to you in your blood, live says the Lord to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. And these stories about the sins of the patriarch are told to make it abundantly clear to Israel, again, Israel considered according to the flesh and Israel considered according to the Spirit, that they they live and belong uniquely to God, not because of something in them, but by the grace of God alone. Of course, the New Testament agrees with this when it says things like, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And this was not a new idea when Paul penned these words. Do you understand that? This was not a new idea. This was not some new revelation that Paul received. Now under the new covenant era, everything's about grace, whereas back then it was based upon works. Not at all. So this was not a new idea. Paul was inspired by the Lord to write what he wrote, of course, but he also knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament scriptures. That was the Bible that he had access to. He understood that this was precisely what the Old Testament scriptures taught. He knew well the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he could see plainly, just as we can see plainly, that they were set apart by the grace of God alone. It was not their own doing It was the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one, not them, nor the Israel that descended from them, may boast. It's always been by God's gracious initiative that we are reconciled to Him. I have a little side note here for you, and it is this. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you understand the severity of Adam's sin as it is described in Genesis 3 and the devastating consequences that it had on all of mankind then you would not be surprised at all to learn that if we are alive in god and right before him it is by his grace alone and not his own doing not our own doing and i ask the question how could it be otherwise given our spiritual death and depravity which was the result of adam's first sin and also of our continual sin The question was, what is the core and foundational truth being established in these narratives which highlight the sins of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And I've already said that the unmerited favor and grace of God is clearly displayed here. But I do think another foundational truth is also established, and it is this, the accomplishment of God's purposes will not be hindered by the sinfulness of His creatures. The accomplishment of God's purposes will not be hindered by the sinfulness of His creatures. And I want to say this to you boldly. This is very good news. This is very important news. This is important for us to know and it is deeply encouraging. And the reason is this. You've probably noticed that we live in a world that is very wicked. We live in a very wicked world. A world filled with sin. But you also know that God's word reveals that he has a plan, don't you? And then therefore the question arises, how how can God possibly accomplish his plan given the prevalence of evil in the world? It looks as if his plan has been thrown off course. It looks as if there's no hope for the fulfillment of his promises. Uh, how is he going to pull it off? All his creatures are have rebelled against Him, and and yet He says that He's going to do certain things in and through us, how will it be so? Does God cause evil, brothers and sisters? The Scriptures say no. The Scriptures say clearly no, that He does not cause evil. Then how does God accomplish His purposes in a world that is plagued by it? And I will admit, the Scriptures do not tell us how He does it. Uh, That is a mystery to us, isn't it? I don't understand how He accomplishes this. But the Scriptures do make it clear that He is able to do it. That is made plain. He is able to bring about His plans and purposes despite the sinful rebellion of His creatures. The theme of God accomplishing His purposes despite the sinfulness of His creatures runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. From the account of the temptation and fall of Adam into sin on to the end of the book of Revelation, we see that God's purposes are accomplished. His promises are fulfilled, and this despite the sinful actions of His creatures. Angels and men rebelled against God and acted deceptively. Angels and men rebelled against God. They sinned against Him, and yet God's purposes are accomplished for, as Isaiah 46, 9 says, He is God, and there is no other. He is God, and there is none like Him. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, there are many points of application to draw from the Genesis narrative. But I want you to understand clearly that the main purpose of these stories, which emphasize the sins of the patriarchs, is to show that their election was by the grace of God alone, and that God is faithful to keep His promises. Not even the sin and rebellion of God's free creatures is able to thwart His sovereign will. That was all introduction. We can now turn our attention to Genesis 29.1 through 30.24 and to the story of Jacob, his interaction with Laban and his marriages to Leah, Rachel, and to their two servants. The title that I've given to this sermon is... Jacob meets his match. Jacob meets his match. And my intention was that this phrase would have a double meaning to it. On the one hand, this story is about Jacob meeting his match, that is to say, his wife, Rachel. But on the other hand, this story is also about Jacob meeting his match, that is to say, Laban, who proved to be just as crafty and deceptive as he was. And so clearly this story is about Jacob finding a wife in fact he ended up with four of them didn't he He had two primary wives along with two of their servants We've established in previous sermons that polygamy is contrary to God's original design for marriage God's design was for man to leave his father and his mother and to hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh that is Genesis 224 uh, Nevertheless the fact of the matter is this is what Jacob did he wound up with uh, four wives It is clear that the story we are considering today mirrors the story that was told back in Genesis 24 of Abraham's servant traveling to find a wife for Isaac. I don't know if as I read the text you you said "This this sounds familiar. Different characters but a similar story being told there are very many parallels. Abraham sent his servant to Haran to find a wife for Isaac and Isaac sent Jacob to the same place to find a wife for himself. Both of the wives were found when the men, Abraham's servant first and then later Jacob, entered the land and they came to a well. Perhaps it was the same well. We don't know for sure, but likely it was. Rebekah, who would become the wife of Isaac, watered the camels for Abraham's servant, whereas Jacob watered Rachel's flock. In both instances it was clear to the men that this was the one from the start. Laban Uh, the brother of Rebekah, I think he links the two narratives together for he is present in both. It's the same Laban who was there when Abraham's servant went to bring uh, Rebekah home, as is present in this story now. Uh, He links the two stories together. Remember that he was there when Abraham's servant rolled into town all those years ago. And uh, what did Laban do in that narrative? Uh, Only certain things were said about him, but he seemed to be greedy He seemed to be a swindler even back then. He took note of the wealth of Abraham's servant. He noticed the rings and the bracelet that were given to his sister. And he was found where? He was checking out the camels, wasn't he? He was impressed with the wealth of Abraham's servant. When it came time for the servant to leave with Rebekah, he tried to delay them. Huh, that's interesting. He tried to delay uh, in this story as well. He tried to delay them, presumably, so that he might extract more wealth from the servant. Now, here we meet Laban again, and we see that he hasn't changed at all. He is still eager to take from others. This time he takes advantage, not of Abraham's servant, but of Abraham's grandson. And he attempts to profit, not from his sister's beauty, but from the beauty of his own daughters. These stories about wives for Isaac and Jacob... Uh, Genesis 24 and here in 29. They're critical to the narrative of Genesis for they answer the question. Here, here's the just real practical question that is being answered How will Isaac and Jacob become the fathers of a great multitude as God has promised them? How is it going to work? Well, the answer is they need wives, don't they? Um, preferably, they would have one wife, but they need wives, they need to procreate. If indeed a great nation would come from them, and if their descendants will be as the dust of the earth, the stars in heaven, and the sand of the seashore, then these single men will need to have wives. Genesis 24 describes to us how Isaac came to have Rebekah as wife, and Genesis 29 describes to us how Jacob came to have his wives, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. It would be through these women that the promises of God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be fulfilled. From them, many offspring would come. Through them, a nation would be born. By them, through the process of childbearing, the Christ would come into the world through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's a crucial element to the overarching story that is being told in the book of Genesis. The facts of Jacob's union to these women and the children that were born to him by them are crucial to the story of Scripture God promised that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have many offspring, and this passage describes to us how all of that came to pass. But I want you to notice something very important. Uh, This passage that we are considering today is much more than a factual account of the descendants of Jacob. It's much more than that. It is certainly not a simple genealogy. By the way, it could have been if Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to to tell us the history of Israel he could have given us a plain vanilla genealogy right? He could have listed for us family tree style uh, the descendants of Jacob if the point of this passage were to state the facts of the history of Israel a simple genealogy would have done the trick but instead we we find a story, it is a narrative and I think you would agree with me that this story is scandalous it is a scandalous story, it's it's the kind of story that when you come to it, if you have small children in the home, when you come to it in your Bible reading, as a father, as a mother, you probably think to yourself, perhaps we'll summarize this one and <laughs> skip ahead a little bit in the book of Genesis because I don't want to answer questions. This is a scandalous story. It's filled with terrible behavior, fueled by jealousy, bitterness, and deceit. And I would imagine that many who read the story think to themselves, is this, is this really in the Bible?" And more than that, was this really the behavior of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel? Really? This is how it all came to be? It's a shocking story. And it's especially shocking when you think that Moses is the one who wrote it down and delivered it to Israel after they were delivered from Egypt in order to say to them, here's your history. I have something for you guys. I've compiled a history of your people, of our people for you. Here it is. And what is it filled with? Scandal. Sin. Deception. Bitterness. Jealousy. It's filled with really awful things. You can't help but read the story and feel terrible for, for Leah. Feel terrible also for her sister. And even for those servants as they're caught up in this drama I've made this point earlier and so I'm not going to belabor it here. But I must again say that one of the main purposes is to communicate to physical and spiritual Israel that her election and privileged position before God is grounded in His free grace alone. You get the impression that Moses was determined to drive this point home as he tells yet another story which draws attention to the scandalous sin of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. It's not one story or two but one after another, where you say, did they really behave in that way? Again, he could have stated the facts in another way, but the Spirit moved him to tell this story so that we might know for certain that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, uh, now that we are fallen into sin, we must recognize that the root of all true religion is grounded in the free grace of God alone. If man is to have a right relationship with God, then God must initiate. God must act. He must graciously extend His hand to lift us up out of the miry clay. And any religion that presupposes that a right relationship with God begins with man's initiative is a false religion at its core. It is out of step with the basic and fundamental story of Holy Scripture. Here we see clearly that God calls and saves, not those who are inherently righteous, but He calls and saves sinners. This he graciously, these He graciously calls to Himself. And sadly, there are many who bear the name Christian who have erred in their understanding of this truth. They have assumed that they are in Christ and right with God because of something that they have done apart from divine grace. In fact, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as Paul calls it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. And so, though it is true that this story tells us about Jacob meeting his match, that is to say, his marriage to Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah, and the offspring that came from them, this story also highlights the depravity and unworthiness of Israel's ancestors and thus highlights God's amazing grace. But as I have said, there is another sense in which Jacob met his match in this narrative. Jacob met his match in Laban, who proved to be just as cunning and deceptive as he had been towards his brother and to his father not long ago. The story is really incredible, isn't it? It was love at first sight for Jacob. He knew that Rachel was the one when he saw her at the well. And so strong was his affection for Rachel that he agreed to work for Laban for seven years in order to have her hand in marriage. Imagine that. I'll wait seven years. I'll work for you for seven years. And do you want to know what my my payment will be? I want Rachel. I want her to be my wife. In fact, the text tells us that those seven years seemed to him, that is to Jacob, to be but A few days because of the love he had for her. It it went by like that. I don't know if that's true. It must be true. It's in the Bible, right? It went by like that for him. We know what the text means, right? Uh, He was so eager to have uh, Rachel as wife. The time flew by. But when the night came for the marriage to be consummated, Laban did something very tricky. He gave his firstborn Leah instead of Rachel. And if you were wondering how he could have pulled this off, you should take into consideration two things. One, the darkness of night, and perhaps even the custom of a bride wearing head coverings. Those two things might help you to understand how he pulled this off. But when morning came, Jacob was surprised. He awoke, and what does the text say? It was Leah. (laughs) You can feel his surprise. And when Jacob confronted Laban concerning this act of deception, Laban simply said, It's not done so in our country To give the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. It's not done so in our country. You can almost hear Isaac, Jacob's father, saying the same thing to himself concerning the blessing he wanted to pronounce upon Esau. Though he knew it was contrary to the word of God. This, This is what God has said, but this is how we do things. We bless the firstborn, not the second. There he is, bent on doing it. And it takes this act of of deception to accomplish God's uh, will. It was wrong that it was deception, but still, Jacob ends up blessed. So, just see the parallels. I want you to recognize them. But it is an ironic story, isn't it? Isn't it ironic? Jacob really did get a taste of his own medicine here, didn't he? He had not long ago followed his mother's plan to deceive his father. He, the second born, pretended to be the first born, and he took advantage of the darkness of his father's aging eyes. But here Laban, who was the brother of uh, Jacob's mother, he used the darkness of night to swap out his second born daughter for the first. And so for 14 years, Jacob the deceiver worked for Laban the deceiver. He met his match, didn't he? Notice that after Jacob introduced himself to Laban and told him that he was his sister's son, Laban said these words to him, "Surely you are my bone and my flesh." Genesis 29:14. And I believe that this too has a double meaning. Naturally considered, it means you are my relative, which was true, but I think it also indicates that Jacob and Laban were cut from the same cloth, if you will. They were kindred spirits. They were both deceivers. And so one can only imagine the impact this had upon Jacob. I would imagine that it was a frustrating, humbling, and ultimately sanctifying experience for him. For 14 years, Jacob had to work for his uncle who was just like him. Laban was greedy for gain, he was willing to deceive. He took advantage of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of others. He met his match. Brothers and sisters, have you noticed that God sometimes sanctifies us by bringing us into contact with what we might call difficult people? Have you ever noticed that? You've probably heard it said, I hope that you have, that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. It's Proverbs 27, 17. And when I hear that proverb, I typically think of friends sharpening one another, In the context of their friendship. Two Christian brothers meeting together to to strengthen and encourage uh, one another in Christ Jesus. I think typically that is what happens. Friends in Christ should encourage one another and challenge one another to pursue Christ and to honor Him in thought, word, and deed. But here is what I want to say to you this morning. Sometimes the Lord will sharpen, sanctify His people, not through happy and pleasant relationships, but through difficult ones also. May I suggest to you that some of the greatest opportunities for being sharpened in Christ will come through contact with those who rub you the wrong way. I want you to think of how a knife is sharpened. A knife is sharpened when it comes into contact with something that is abrasive. A sword is formed when the bladesmith subjects that iron to fire and bludgeons it with another piece of iron over and over and over again. So, no, this does not give the difficult and abrasive person the right to be difficult and abrasive, abrasive, saying, well, I'm being used of the Lord to sanctify everyone around me. Um, But it does just draw attention to this truth that sometimes the Lord sanctifies us through people that we might call difficult. I think it should help us to think differently about the difficult relationships in, in our life, don't you think? Maybe it's a difficult coworker, or even someone within the church that rubs you the wrong way. The Lord may be using that to teach you some things. It might even be your wife who from time to time rubs you the wrong way, or your husband. Instead of looking at that person and grumbling about the difficulty, maybe say, Lord, thank you, for in this relationship I see that you are... You are knocking rough edges off of me. Maybe even your children. I I love my children very much, but I think every parent would agree that there are moments where difficulties arise. Thank you, Lord, for this relationship. Though it is difficult now, I could see how you're using it to refine me as one of your children. I'm sure that the Lord used lying Laban to sanctify Jacob the deceiver. And I would suggest to you that the difficult people in your life are there for a reason. Perhaps the Lord is teaching you patience. Maybe He is teaching you how to love those who aren't always lovely. It may be that you need to learn how to confront wrongdoings, but with winsomeness and grace, perhaps the Lord is humbling you by confronting you with your own sin through someone else's similar behavior. It, maybe you have this circumstance where someone is bothering you, but when you think about it enough, you go, I'm the same way. Sometimes the Lord gets our attention concerning the severity of our sin by allowing us to have a taste Of our own medicine. I think that was the case here in this narrative for Jacob. Friends, we should not run from those who are difficult. Yes, sometimes boundaries are needed, but we should also learn to give thanks to God for those who might rub us the wrong way and to ask the Lord to use them to sanctify us further and further. In Genesis 29, we see that Jacob met his match, he found a wife. In fact he took four of them to himself which as we have established in previous sermons was contrary to God's design for marriage in the beginning. And Jacob also met his match in Laban. He had to work for a man who was just like him for 14 years. By the way, quick side note, I think he had Leah as wife after seven years and I think he had Rachel as wife after seven years and one week. But he had to work for Laban for another seven years after taking Rachel to be his wife. The second thing we must consider in this story, and there isn't much time left in the sermon, is that it was from this mess of a situation that the nation of Israel was born. We're not going to spend much time on this point, as I have just said, but it is important to notice that here in Genesis 29, 31 and following, the contours of the nation of Israel are seen for the first time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised that a great multitude and nation would come from them. And here, for the very first time, we are beginning to see the contours of the nation of Israel, the heads of the tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel are introduced to us. We see their names here for the first time. Most of these names should sound familiar to you. They probably did. Leah was born six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and she also had one daughter named Dinah. To Rachel was born two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. To Bilhah was born two sons, Dan and Nephtali. And to Zilpah was born two sons, Gad and Asher. And from these, the twelve tribes of Israel would eventually emerge. Two of these sons are of supreme importance, Judah and Joseph. Notice that Judah was named after his mother decided this time I'm going to give praise to God and indeed Judah would be the one through whom the Christ would come so that praise would be offered up to God almighty through him. Through Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's son, physical salvation would come to Israel through Egypt, you see. Um, and so we see the contours of the nation of Israel. We see that two are highlighted, Judah and Joseph. The stage is being set for the rest of the story of redemption to unfold. And here is yet another demonstration That our God is able to cause all things to work together for good. He is able to bring light from darkness. We've learned that in the book of Genesis, haven't we? He is able to call forth light from darkness. He is also able to bring order from chaos. He is able to bring life from death. And also good from evil. Not even the sinfulness of His free creatures is able to frustrate His plans, derail His purposes, or hinder the fulfillment of His promises. Brothers and sisters, these truths that have been set before you today should impact your life. May the knowledge that our election in Christ is unconditional produce humility along with confidence within you. Humility from the fact that we have been chosen and called by Christ by His grace alone and not on the basis of something deserving within us so that no one may boast. But also confidence, knowing that if our right standing before God has God's unmerited favor as its origin, then it is also by His grace that His work will be finished within us and not our own good works. Humility comes from this doctrine. And also confidence. We come before the Lord time and time again knowing that we are sinners. But we say, it was never about my righteousness in the first place, but the righteousness of another. And so we come to God time and time again, not bringing our own good works to Him, but instead saying, we come to you in the name of Jesus the Christ. And the good works that we do are out of gratitude for what He has done for us. It's only by Your grace, God, that we are able to come and we give You thanks. And may the knowledge that God is able to accomplish His purposes despite the sinful rebellion of His creatures encourage and comfort our souls as we sojourn in this sin-sick world. Sometimes the evil around us seems to be so strong. Sometimes it seems as if the darkness will prevail. But we know from the Holy Scriptures and from history, the history that is retold to us here in the pages of Holy Scripture, God will win the day. His purposes will stand. His promises will be fulfilled. For He is God Most High. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and He is faithful. His counsel shall stand, and He will accomplish all His purpose. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord, Psalm 31, 24. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for these stories, which are actually quite perplexing when we first read them, given the scandal that is contained within them. But we thank You that Your Word is faithful to exalt You, O God. Your holiness, Your faithfulness, And also, it is faithful to highlight our sinfulness. Though it is not pleasant to consider, it is good for our souls to realize how depraved we are. So help us, Lord, to move forward according to these truths, in humility, but also in confidence, knowing that You will finish the work that You have begun. It's the name of Jesus the Christ we pray, and all of God's people say,